The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. Ezra chapter 9. Guys, we are bringing our, our summer series through the book of Ezra to a close this morning. By looking at Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Now, if you're curious, where's Pastor Ricky going next? Where are we going next this fall and, and, and from a, a preaching standpoint? Uh, I want to invite you to come back tonight to our members meeting. We're going to be talking about that, among other things. Uh, some really, really excited about what I believe the Lord has impressed upon my heart from a preaching ministry uh, going into the fall. So come tonight. We're going to be talking about where we're going uh, in, in that regard. Ezra chapter 9. And chapter 10. I, I mentioned to you um, last Sunday that the two major sections within the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, chapter 7 through 10, mirror each other. That chapter 1 of the first section begins with this decree that's made by Cyrus, this proclamation that the exiles can return to the land. And the first chapter of the second major section, chapter 7, begins likewise with a decree from King Artaxerxes. A proclamation that says the exiles can go back to the land. A second wave of exiles. Then chapter 2 of the first major, major section uh, gave us this list uh, of names of those exiles that went back to the land. And we saw that the second chapter of the second major section, chapter 8, began the same way with a list of names of the second wave of exiles going back to the land. So, so they're, they're, they're mirroring each other. That actually continues off into Nehemiah. We're not going there, but it does. Uh, do you remember what happened with the first wave of exiles in section number 1? After they returned to the land and they started to rebuild the temple, they started restoring worship in the land. Do you remember what happened next? Opposition came. Opposition came against them, right? And opposition came in the first section from the outside. The enemies, their enemies of the nations around them tried to stop them from being able to rebuild the temple, which threatened the worship of God being restored in the land. But we saw in Ezra chapters 4 through 6 how God defeated those enemies. The temple was indeed completed because there is no external force that can stop the worship of God. Now similarly... The second major section in the book of Ezra also concludes with opposition coming against this second wave of exiles. But guys, this is now a new threat to God being worshipped that emerges here in the second section. This is, a, this is a different type of threat than we saw in the first section because this threat does not come from outside the people of God. This threat comes from inside the people of God. Okay. Now, only four months has transpired between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Okay? So these new exiles have only been back in the land for four months. And do you remember how chapter 8 ended? This high note of celebration, right? 
God protected them in this long journey. They were traveling with the king silver and gold, and God protected them, got them all the way to the land, to the house of God. And chapter 8 ended with these, these offerings and sacrifices and praise that was happening in the land, this, this high note of celebration. And then it says this, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. After these things had been done, four months later, the leaders approached me. This is Ezra writing in the first person here. The leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites and Hethites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Ammonites and Moabites and Egyptians and Amorites. Verse 2, indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Let's stop right there. So it's brought to Ezra's attention and the leader's of the people, it's brought to their attention that some of the people in Israel, even some of the leaders in Israel, had intermarried with people from the surrounding nations who did not worship God. Now, I want to point out at the very beginning, and just to be clear on this, the issue here, okay, the sin in question here is not a matter of race. This is not an issue of interracial marriage. Guys, I have pointed out before a couple of times how in some key places in the Bible, how the Bible speaks actually very positively about interracial marriage within the people of God. Moses married to a Cushite and a couple actually was struck with leprosy for criticizing that marriage. Uh, there's Ruth, the Moabite, who marries Boaz, the bloodline that, that Jesus comes from. Okay, The issue here in Ezra 9 is not racial. Listen, it's religious. God's people had entered into covenant relationship with others who worshipped false gods. That's the issue. And I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2 how how Ezra is using language of purity here, right? In verse 2 he says, the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The people have become impure because they haven't separated themselves. And so now there is impurity in the camp. There's impurity within the people of God. Remember guys, God had redeemed Israel. He had redeemed Israel the people of Israel, to be a people of worship. They were saved out of their slavery in order to worship God. And at this point in the book of Ezra, they had built a place for worship, the temple. They had all of the the forms of worship, they had the sacrifices, they had the offerings, they had the singers, so they were, they were singing their songs, they had all the forms of worship, right? They had the place, they had the songs, they had the forms, they had the structures, they had the people, but what were they missing for worship? Purity. 
they were missing purity. Here's the point. To be a people of worship, we must be a people of purity. To be a people of worship, we must be a people of purity. Guys, if you're going to make bread, and you have the yeast, and you have the salt, and you have the oven, but you don't have any flour, you're not going to end up with bread. Church, we can have the services, we can have the songs, we can have the quiet times, we can have the generosity, we can have the attendance, and all the other forms of religion. But if we do not have purity, we will not end up with worship. Now, there are two applications to that truth, that to be a people of worship, we must be a people of purity. The first application is, this means you cannot be a worshiper of God unless God first makes you pure through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's start there. Understand, the Christian gospel is not clean up your life so that you can know and worship God. That's not really good news at all because we've tried to clean up our lives. We can't seem to get it clean ourselves. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel says that through faith, Jesus will clean you. He will clean you by absorbing the wrath of the Father that was set against you, and he will clean you by imputing his righteousness, crediting it to your account, giving you his righteousness, making you pure so that you can know and worship God. So what this means is it doesn't matter how devoted you are to any religion, if you are not trusting Jesus, clinging to the cross of, of Christ, relying on his sacrifice alone as payment, as a covering for your debt of sin, you cannot be a worshiper of God. That Jesus has to make you pure before you can Worship, that's one application of the truth. But let me give you another application of that truth. As God's people, those who have been cleaned, those of us who have been redeemed, it means we must live as a pure people. We have to live as a holy people. By purity, I mean living separated from a sin. Okay, if, if, if you are harboring sin in your life, and I don't mean you've got sin issues that you're aware of and you're convicted by and you're grieved by and you're fighting against and you're confessing because that, I just described the Christian life. Like, that's all of us. I don't mean that. What I mean is you are knowingly 
and unrepentantly holding on to harboring sin in your life. I'm not going to let go of this. Guys, you can come in here every week and you can sing with us and you can raise your hands with us. But you cannot offer worship that is pleasing to God so long as you are hiding and holding and harboring sin in your life. Church, that's not, that's not legalism. I'm aware anytime we start talking about purity and holiness, we, 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 we get af- afraid of legalism. Um, it's not legalism. Legalism would say this. Legalism would say that the way in which you separate yourself from the world and the paganism of the world is, you know, by not listening to any secular music and not dancing and wearing, you know, dresses that that cover your ankles and coming up with all of these other non-biblical rules in order to be separated from the world rather than actually being concerned with your heart and the posture of your heart and the state of your heart. That's legalism. So yes, let's avoid legalism, but let's never minimize the significance of purity in the Christian life because we've been saved for worship and to be a people of worship, we must be a people of purity. Okay, and so here's the question. Is God's people, um, what do we do when we discover impurity in our lives? As, As we live our lives and the Spirit graciously convicts and exposes sin in our hearts and our lives. What is the right response to sin and impurity in our lives as the people of God? That's what we're going to see in these two chapters. These two chapters are going to show us how to respond to impurity. We're going to move quickly through chapters 9 and 10. But I want to point out four responses to impurity. Okay, four responses to impurity. Let's go back to chapter 9 and pick up with me in verse 3, okay? The the impurity has been exposed. How are they going to respond? Verse 3, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and robe. I pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down devastated. Everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe at torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Let, let's stop right there. When, when impurity is uncovered in our lives, first we grieve. We grieve. That's what we see in Ezra here. Ezra hears of their sin, and the text tells us he was devastated. He, he felt this deep sense of grief and, and, and sorrow. He was broken before God. Because this is where repentance begins. Repentance begins with feeling about sin the way that God feels about sin. You know, part, part of our challenge as Christians in, in the Christian life is that over time we tend to grow numb towards sin. We, we, become, uh, we become desensitized 
to sin. Now, now how does that happen? How do we over time grow numb to sin? Well, a couple of ways. One reason we might grow numb to sin is because we have been harboring what seems like small and insignificant sins in our life. Like maybe there's a sin issue in your life and it doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Maybe there's just a, you're just, there's just a little bit of covetousness in, in your heart and you're aware of it and you think, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's a little bit of covetousness. I'm not going to really address that or deal with that. I'm just going to let that sit there. I'm going to hold on to that and harbor that. But what you don't realize is that harboring even little sins in your Life is like putting a little drop of lidocaine on your heart. And no matter how small the sin is, it has this this numbing effect on your heart toward future sin. And so that over time, we grow more and more desensitized to sin in our lives. And then one day we wake up and we're absolutely immersed in impurity, and it doesn't even feel like that big of a deal to us because our, sin, our hearts have become so numb towards sin. Another way we grow numb to sin is, and, and this is important, listen, is by failing to gaze regularly at the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus in the scriptures. Guys, when all we look at every day is this world around us, when this is all we are seeing, this world where, where sin is not just tolerated, it's, it's, it's celebrated, we can start to become desensitized to it, which is why it's so important that we renew our minds every day by getting in the scriptures to look at, to behold, to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus in the scriptures. When you're beholding the beauty of Jesus and then you see sin in your life, it will grieve you. And so so the first... (laughs) The first response to sin is that we grieve. There's sorrow. There's brokenness. We grieve. Now, the rest of chapter 9 is Ezra's prayer of confession. He confesses the sin to God. And this leads us to the second way we respond to impurity. We don't just grieve. Number two, we confess. We confess. Okay? We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin to God. I'm not going to read all of Ezra's prayer of confession here. I do want to point out just a, a, a few qualities of his confession. The first being that Ezra refuses to distance himself from culpability in the sin. Okay, look at verse six. This is his prayer. He says, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you. My God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads, and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Now, I want you to notice, (laughs) Ezra himself had not taken a pagan wife. Like, he himself had not committed this 
iniquity, and yet he speaks here as if somehow he has participated in the iniquity. Guys, the worldview that Ezra has here, which, by the way, is a worldview that runs throughout the scriptures. It's a worldview that is, that is, that is foreign to the American mind, which tends to be so individualistic in our, our thinking. The worldview of the scriptures is this strong sense of corporate identity in the Bible. That the people of Israel, they were one. They were a holistic group. They were a unified organism. They couldn't be split off into different parts. And there was sin in the group. And so every part of the group is involved in the iniquity. He says, our iniquities, our guilt. This is significant because sometimes as Christians, like we see sin in the lives of of our brothers and sisters, we see sin in the church and we want to distance ourselves from it. Right? It's none of my business. That's between them and God. That doesn't concern me. God, and I just, I'm, I'm pointing out from the text, that's not biblical thinking. We, we've, we, we've said this before. My sin, my sin is your problem. Not just because I'm a leader but because I'm a part of this body. My sin is your problem. Your sin is my problem. We cannot distance ourselves from sin in the camp. Now, that doesn't mean that we, right, we walk around and we approach one another with a legalistic spirit, like with the aim of just kicking people out and excommunication, and I'm gonna, man, I'm gonna arrogantly call out the sin harshly I see in your life, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm jumping straight to excommunication. We've got to separate ourselves from the sin. That's not, that's not the spirit, right? Like we, we humbly live with our brothers and sisters in such a way that there will be times in which I need to go to them and I need to express concern over what I'm seeing in their lives, and I do so humbly and with grace and with kindness and love because there will be a time in which they need to do that for me and that we're walking side by side to, together and the aim is never to, you know, to, to excommunicate. The aim is always restoration that they can be healthy, that we can be healthy as the people of God. I just point out, Ezra doesn't distance himself from the sin. Now, another quality of Ezra's confession is he doesn't try to minimize the sin. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't shift blame, right? He confesses the sin and acknowledges we deserve judgment because we have sinned against God. Drop down to verse 14. He says, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? That's a rhetorical question. He's asking that as if to say, God, if you wiped us out right now, leaving nobody behind, you would be just in doing so. <laughs> we, we deserve judgment for this sin. Verse 15, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. Guys, there's no excusing. There's no minimizing. There's no tr trying to justify or shift the blame. Ezra simply acknowledges we are guilty. We deserve judgment. All we can do is rely on the mercy of God. All we can do is just rely on his grace and his mercy. 
So I want you to consider this morning, are, are you in the habit of <laughs> confessing sin? I really think on that. When was the last time you confessed sin in your life? When sin is exposed in, in your heart, the spirit, the word exposes sin, do you actually pause and take time first to confess your sin to God because you know your sin is first and foremost against him and then if you have sinned against another person, do you go to them and confess your sin and, 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 and seek forgiveness? Do you have people in your life, do you have people in this church, do you have people in your community group that you're in the, the, the practice of confessing your sins one to another? This is how the scriptures teach us to respond to, to sin. We, we grieve, we confess. Guys, the enemy will always give you a reason to minimize your sin. The enemy will always give you reasons to try to justify, shift blame, hold it in. But God says, what God teaches us is acknowledge it, own it, confess it. We grieve we confess. And then number three, we remember. We remember. And specifically here, guys, we remember the grace that God has already shown us. Okay, after confessing, he's in the middle of this prayer of confession. Confessing their sin, confessing their guilt. Ezra begins to remember, recall the grace that God has shown them. Look at verse 8. He says, but now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in this holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Like the very fact that they were, they were living back in the land was a, a sign, it was evidence of how gracious God had been to them. Ezra recalls the grace and the compassion of God, how time and time again God has been gracious to the people of Israel. He has shown them mercy. He has shown them steadfast love and compassion. When, when we, this is important, when we become broken over sin in our lives and we're grieving that sin and we're confessing that sin, it's so important that we also remember that the Lord is a God of grace and mercy. Because what this does is it gives us hope in our sorrow over sin. It keeps the heaviness of sin from crushing us and driving us into despair, driving us further away from God. And the very fact that we are confessing sin as Christians means that God has been abundantly gracious toward us. And church, listen, it is God's grace. It's his compassion. It's his love for us that actually fuels our repentance. It fuels our pursuit of holiness. We get this wrong sometimes in the Christian life. We think that what fuels our pursuit of purity is hellfire and brimstone as if we have to scare ourselves into purity or we have to scare other people into purity. 
Now, we're, we're, of course, aware of the judgment of God, but Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us, that fuels our pursuit of him. It's the love of God poured out into our heart that produces within us a deep love for God. And it's that love for God that moves us to want to be pure and holy before him. Okay? And so we, we grieve over sin. We're broken. We, we confess our sin. We don't minimize. We don't justify. We acknowledge our guilt before God. And then we remember who God is. He is a God of grace. He is gracious toward the humble. He is gracious toward those who tremble at his word. And, and then finally, number four, we repent. Okay, we repent. Ezra chapter 9 shows Ezra and the people grieving and confessing their sin. Ezra chapter 10 shows the people repenting of their sin. Okay, it's time to act. It's time to obey. It's not enough to cry over sin. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry. We must turn from sin. This is what repentance means. It means turning away from sin and turning toward God. And, and this leads us to what has to be the strangest scene in the entire book of Ezra. I didn't write the book. I would have not have ended the book this way, but I'm, God did and God knows best. All right, Strange scene here in Ezra chapter 10. Let's talk about it for just a moment. There's a guy named uh, Shechaniah. And he approaches Ezra. They're grieving their, this sin. Uh, he, he approaches Ezra with a suggestion. Verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2. Middle of verse 2. It says, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples. But there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let's make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the command of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. Let's separate ourselves. Let's send them away. This is exactly what Ezra and the leaders do. Um, they, they begin by calling all of the people to, to Jerusalem. We're going to all get together. We're going we're to talk about this. The text says that you have, this is the, one of the darker scenes in the entire book. You have the entire people, all of the exiles, gathered together there in Jerusalem, outside the temple in kind of the open courtyard area there. It's dark. It's cloudy. It's raining. It says the people are, are cold. They're shivering because they're out in the rain. Like, you, you think this room is cold, right? Like, they... They're out in the, this is the month of December, in the rain, and, and Ezra is having a come to Jesus meeting with, with them. And, and after confronting them with their, their sin, he says this in verse 11. He says, therefore make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and he, and do his will, do his will. Separate yourself from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives and they all say it says in verse 12 yes we will do as you say just let us go home and get out of this rain whatever you want Ezra that's fine it tells us that they appoint overseers some leaders to oversee this process of sending away the foreign wives it takes about three months um, and all those ultimately all those who were, who were followers of these pagan gods from the surrounding nations they went back to their homelands out of the land of Israel chapter 10 then gives us a list of names of those who had taken pagan wives 
I, I, I guess this is their minutes from the, their business meeting that were published. Here are the names of those involved. Um, and this is how the book ends. <laughs> it's over. Let me read verse 44. He says, all uh, these had married foreign women, some and some of the wives had, had given birth to children. Okay, Str- strange scene. Obvious questions come to mind. First of all, God just tell these guys to divorce their, their spouses? Because I'm pretty sure the Bible says that God doesn't really like divorce. In fact, Malachi is prophesying around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi actually says God hates divorce. And the follow-up question is, what do I do today if I'm, if I'm married to an unbelieving spouse? I mean, is that, does that make me impure? Does that make me unholy? Do I, need to, do I need to send them away? Let me just say a couple of things here. Um, there are a lot of details about this scene and what was happening and the process that they went through that we wish Ezra would have provided for us that Ezra did not provide for us. So, so we should be cautious and careful drawing strong ethical conclusions for specific contemporary situations exclusively from this passage. All right. um, I will point out a couple of things. The word... Uh, that's used for marriage in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 2, for example, and throughout chapter 10, is not the typical Hebrew word for marriage. It's a word that literally means to give dwelling to someone. Likewise, the word that's used uh, throughout chapter 10 to, you know, sending them away, to send them away, it's not the typical legal word, Hebrew word, that's typically used to describe a, a divorce. So it's, it's very possible that these weren't legal, legitimate marriages, all right? It, it's, it's not exactly clear from the text whether this is truly a matter of divorce in a legal sense or if this is simply a, a relational separation. You've brought these people into your home, you're living with them, you're doing life with them, we need to send them out. Now, fortunately, there are some other texts in the Bible that do speak clearly (laughs) to Christians who find themselves married to to unbelievers, like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for example. And Paul addresses this matter head on. He says, listen, if you're a believer... And, and you find yourself married to an unbelieving spouse, you need to be faithful in your marriage to them. You need to remain committed to them. That your unbelieving spouse does not somehow make you impure or unholy because of your union with them. In fact, Paul says opposite. He says that you, the believer, are actually making your unbelieving spouse holy. Not in the sense that they are saved on the basis of the marriage, but in the sense that there is favor and blessing on that home, which the unbelieving spouse is benefiting from because the believing spouse is present within the home. Now Paul says if the unbelieving spouse leaves you and is not 
is no longer committed to this covenant of marriage with you, then, then you are free from that covenant, but your, your assignment insofar as they are committed is to remain committed to your marriage. It does not make you unholy or impure. Okay. So you say, okay, then what is the application for us then today? <laughs> if it's not justifying Divorce in some situations because we're not even sure that we're dealing with marriage and divorce here in Ezra. If it's clear, if we, get, if we have clear instructions, if I'm, if I'm married to an unbelieving spouse, kind of what the right approach is, okay, what, okay, what does it mean for us today? Well, guys, chapter again, 10 gives us a picture of repentance. I think that's the application. That when sin is uncovered in your life, yes, we grieve the sin, we confess the sin, we remember God's grace, but this entire process of responding to, to, to impurity has to culminate ultimately in repentance, right? Actually turning away from the sin, separating yourself from the sin. And I want you to just notice the totality and the urgency of their repentance here. They don't postpone addressing it. We'll take care of that some other time. They don't just kind of address it. They address it immediately and completely. Because, as we have seen, we saw last Sunday, the gracious hand of God had been on this people, and they understand that if they were to harbor this sin and not deal with it and hold on to it, then that hand of grace would turn into a hand of anger and resistance and discipline. Guys, this, this text calls us to consider our relationship with the world around us as God's people. In what ways has your heart become unequally yoked to the world around you? Guys, I'm not talking about whether or not you listen to rock and roll music or have tattoos. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your heart. Where have you given the impurities of this world, the the values of this world, the politics of this world, the temperaments of this world, the ideologies of this world, the ambitions and priorities of the world, where have you given them a dwelling within your heart? And as God, and he will do this, this is the Christian life, as God exposes sin in your life, we see the process of responding to that. We grieve the sin. We confess the sin. We remember God's grace and love and we repent. In other words, we don't play around with sin. The more you play and dabble with sin, the more numb your heart will become towards sin. We wage war on sin. Because God's hand of blessing will not rest on the life or on the church that knowingly unrepentantly holds on to sin and refuses to turn. And I want to I leave you with this, this, this word, this reminder, okay? The most effective way to pursue purity is not to bunker down and to get as far away from the world as possible, 
the most effective way to pursue purity is to gaze on the beauty and the glory and the majesty of King Jesus. That the more that you see him, the more time you spend in his presence, the more that you taste and see that he is good, the more repulsive sin will taste to your own heart. Ezra is a book about the renewal of worship among God's people. And the book ends with this exhortation. To be a people of worship, we must be a people of purity.